This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. And welcome to the show for another week. How are you, Alicia? Oh, yeah, I'm all right, I guess. It's, what is it now? It's October. Oh my God, it's October. Well, how the fuck did it get to October? It's actually kind of inspired my episode for today, actually, because it's October, <gasps> yes. it's getting into the spooky months. You're the one who has the episode the closest to Halloween. And so I was like, well, I'm going to do one anyway. <laughs> uh, it's not like a spooky, spooky episode, but it is about, well, the queen of goths, really, like the original mm-hmm. goth mm-hmm. teen queen dream And a figure who has been much requested most recently by Amy. So hello, Amy. Uh, But many others have also requested this woman. And it is, of course, Gothic Supreme, mother of horror, literal inventor of science fiction, Mary Shelley. Of course. Yay! We had to get to her eventually. It was inevitable. It certainly was. And it's funny because she's one of these ones who obviously has kind of, I said, obviously she's been on our list since the very beginning, but she has. Mm. And I think one of the reasons what we haven't gotten to her yet is because she's maybe seems so obvious a candidate yeah. <laughs> to be on Dear Women that you always go for the other figures. Yeah, I'm one of those women that's been written about a hell of a lot, talked about a hell of yeah, a lot. And so we much. do sort of, you know, we do tend to like to find mm. slightly more obscure figures mm. or, um, you know, to really kind of unpick ones that people are probably more unfamiliar with. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that even looking at a much more sort of, I suppose, well-known figure like Mary Shelley mm. doesn't mean that there's still not lots of information yeah. there that's not common knowledge well this is it i think mary shelley is the type of figure who people know very particular details about her life but maybe actually don't know the whole picture Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly and she's also a figure that despite being a figure who was born you know over 200 years ago was in the prime of her writing career literally two centuries ago it hasn't really been until the last 50 years that she's actually really started to have been looked at by scholars as really a figure in her own right and not just somebody who had this one outstanding novel which was inspired by all of these other radical thinkers and artists who were yeah. in her circle. So she's been spoken of a lot in relation to others, mm. but until recently her own biography, her own kind of brilliantness and the influence of her own life on what she wrote – has kind of been a little bit under overlooked, I should say. Yeah. And of course, we should say as well, you know, we assume everybody knows who Mary Shelley is, but, you know, to some people, that mm. name may not be a familiar one. No. Of course, we come from a literature background, <laughs> so yeah. she's very familiar to us. Yeah. But of course, most famously, the author of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. 
It's Frankenstein. <laughs> no, I don't need to go down that path. And therefore the, the mother of the various many dozens and dozens and literally dozens if not hundreds of variations of her creation, yes. Frankenstein, Too which lovely. I have taught on a number of occasions as well. So, Same. Um, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, a lot of teaching of Frankenstein. She is one that we too, I guess, are very familiar yes. with it. And she came up a lot in my PhD as well because I mm. wrote a lot mm-hmm. about the female Gothic. And well, Mary Shelley is a very prominent figure within, you know, the realm of the female Gothic. It also means that for the I think probably for the very first time, I get to actually talk about two of my favorite scholars. Oh <laughs> yes. And I know I know where you're going here. I know. Gilman and Gruber, yes, who wrote The Mad Woman in the Attic. So if anyone is super, super interested in some of the themes that we will probably pick up on today. I had an excuse for this episode to get out my giant compendium, the second mm-hmm. edition of The Mad Woman in the Attic, um, and revisit some of those essays. So do look that one up if you are a super nerd like me. I reckon that the last time we really properly mentioned that was like our second episode or our third episode oh ever on Bertha Mason. Of course. The original Mad Woman in the Attic. The actual so, Mad Woman in the Attic. Yeah. Yes. So you could always go back to the Bertha episode to <laughs> get some get some more of that. But take us, Lauren, look, this is going to be a big one. It's, it's going to be, be a big a one. long one. And Get I will also want to begin by kind of cautiously acknowledging that this is a woman who does mean a lot to a lot of people and I can't possibly do her life justice within the space of a single Deviant Women episode, let alone begin to kind of unpack everything that has ever been kind of written or said about her and all the various interpretations of her work and her life. And like I said, the relationships that she had with an extraordinary number of extraordinary people. But we're going to, I guess, dig into the stuff that we find the most compelling. So this is our version of Mary (laughs) Mary Shelley's life. Let's do it. I'm so ready. I've been ready for what? How long have we been doing this? Four years. Nearly nearly four four years, years. yeah. (laughs) So Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was born in London in 1797 to two very influential political radicals, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin. Yes, a little woo. Of course, Mary Wollstonecraft is a woman who deserves her own and will probably eventually get <laughs> episode of deviant woman she's a very deviant woman for mm-hmm. her time mm-hmm. she is i guess really largely seen as a, a proto-feminist largely because she's the author of uh, a vindication on the rights of women which was published in 1792 and this was a a kind of you know political work that advocated for you know the rights of women particularly the rights of women to be educated and it attacked the sort of philosophies of writers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau who believed that women should only be educated for the pleasure of men and in it <laughs> Wollstonecraft agrees that you know what all right Rousseau yeah women are a little bit silly Okay, they're a little bit ditzy from time to time, but only because men have infantilized them and denied them an education. And it's not because of any natural propensity to be ditzy and silly, but simply because they've never been afforded the opportunities to not be silly and ditzy. And so this work really advocates really, yeah, for the education of women. And that's really what she's super, super famous for, particularly today. But she was also a political reformer in many other ways as well. 
She also wrote a couple of years before A Vindication on the Rights of Men, which advocated for republicanism and it attacked the aristocracy. She also wrote novels, travel works, a conduct book, and she was notorious in her time for her very unorthodox lifestyle, which Mm. included her very unorthodox sort of attitudes towards platonic relationships and uh, the institution of marriage. (laughs) Mm. Which is an interesting one because it kind of sort of plays through into her daughter's life a little uh-huh. bit. Absolutely. It, it yeah. really look, Mary was hugely, hugely, hugely influenced by her mother in ways that I will unpack in just a moment. Because her other equally influential parental figure was of course William Godwin, her father. And he was also a radical philosopher and writer. And he's considered really one of the forefathers of the anarchist movement. And utilitarianism, which is an ethical philosophy that, you know, advocates for actions that kind of maximize individual happiness and well-being, which is a very, very simplistic starting point. Uh, It's far more complex and, to be honest, quite problematic once you actually kind of unravel it. But I'll just sort of leave it at that because this is not an episode about William Godwin's politics. He basically, though, believed that the monarchy and the government were inherently corrupt and that humans were capable of goodness and perfection without being controlled by others. So he really just thought that the principles of enlightenment, the idea that humans kind of collectively will naturally progress towards goodness would just sort of happen. (laughs) People would be guided by their own morality, by the good of the community and by the principles of reason, which was very much enlightenment ideology that came out of the late 1700s. And again, that's an interesting one because that's in some ways at odds a bit with Mary herself. Yeah. Mm, Yes. Anyway, I'm sure we will get into that more. This is the reason why I'm kind of planting these seeds, because we will see how they mature into, you know, (laughs) more fully fledged ideas in the works of Mary and the way that Mary's own politics kind of shift and change in relation to these ideas of her parents. Mm. So Godwin and Wollstonecraft, they were already very kind of, you know, intellectuals in their own rights. And then they met at this party where they were both knew that they were the smartest people in the room (laughs) and being the two smartest people in the room, they were, I think, kind of mutually attracted to each other and kind of butted against each other. And so they actually, yeah, they just fought all night apparently. And then they went away their separate ways. And in the meantime, Godwin read some of Wollstonecraft's works, particularly her travel writing, and he just fell in love with her. Like he was like, this woman is fucking perfect because she was. She was brilliant. But Mary Wollstonecraft already had a child, Fanny Imlay, who was a love child. Because remember, she's, Mm -hmm. you know, very anti-establishment, anti-monogamy, anti-institutions. A love child with the American adventurer Gilbert Imlay who abandoned her not long after she gave birth. And so when she and Godwin married, because they did marry, because Mary Wollstonecraft was pregnant with Mary Shelley, this, you know, love child kind of really besmirched both of their reputations. And this was actually the reason why they ended up getting married when um, she found herself pregnant, because they didn't want that same, you know, taint of illegitimacy Mm -hmm. to touch Mary, even though both of them were you know, politically against marriage and the fact that Godwin particularly married, you know, a lot of his followers were like, dude, (laughs) like 
We thought that you were all, you know, anti. Exactly. But, I mean, look, hey, we're talking the 1790s. Yes, that's right. (laughs) And, I mean, there's a lot of disservice you can do to your child if that stigma attaches to Uh, them. That's right. And that's really, at the end of the day, what they were trying to avoid. And I think it's also interesting because we're going to see how particularly William's politics shift when they're applied to himself and when they're applied to his daughter. Mm, <laughs> it's one of those do as I say, not as I do kind of situations oh, with William. Fabulous, fabulous. But unfortunately for for little Mary, uh, Wollstonecraft Godwin, as she is at this time, uh, she wasn't able to really, you know, benefit from the intelligence and radical philosophies of her mother directly because, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft died when Mary was just 11 days old. And this was from complications from the birth. Uh, she had an infection which developed from the unclean fingers of the physician. He basically mm. reached up inside her to pull out the placenta with mm-hmm. dirty hands. Mm-hmm. And so she developed an infection and she died. So Mary would only really come to know her mother through her writing. That's such a common thing. Like it took so long oh. before actual hygiene oh, yeah. was There's... before anyone went, oh, Hang on maybe a before we cut you open, we should just like wash our yeah. hands. I mean, germ theory doesn't exist. The idea of germs are... That's impossible, Len. That's magic. The tiny microscopic creatures that make you sick. What? No, get God out didn't of here. invent those. They're not a thing. <laughs> yeah, that's why I can't see that. Can't yeah. be real. Anyway. Yeah. So this left Mary and Fanny, her half-sister, in the care of her father. And he was a very devoted father. And as a devoted father of the 18th century, he believed really one of the best things he could do for his children was to remarry and give them a mother. And so in 1801, he married again, this time to Mary Jane Claremont, who had two children of her own, Charles and Claire. I love the fact that her name is Claire Claremont. Well, how, how good is that? <laughs> that's what I thought initially, but actually her name is Jane Clara Claremont. And because her middle name was Clara, she went by Claire. Oh, yeah. okay. That's how she ended up Claire so, Claremont. That's right. All right. Yeah. It's not it. like her, she just didn't She didn't just have like weird parents who were like, you know, it would be hilarious. It's not like Lenny Leonard and Carl Carlson. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay, good. Just checking. Now, Mary and Mary Jane, they butted heads a little bit. They weren't each other's favorite people probably because Mary was a um, – precocious little goth and Mary Jane was just, (laughs) I guess, more of your like typical like mother. She also favoured her own two children as well a little bit. Which is expected. You can expect that. Yeah. But together, uh, William and Mary Jane, there's so many Marys, apologies, also quite a few Janes. (laughs) They started a publishing firm called MJ Godwin, but it wasn't super successful. So they often found themselves in debt. William also just barely escaped Deptor's prison because he was kind of financially helped out by some of his devotees, a fact that will also come up again very Mm. soon and loom large in Mary's life. So she grew up in a house that was actually largely pretty happy. Um, She had lots and lots of lots of books to read. Her father's house was filled with uh, scholars and intellectuals, and she would have grown up around, you know, these kind of philosophical debates and a lot of really radical ideas that just floated through the house. It was quite an unconventional upbringing. But her mother's life still loomed very large, both because Mary spent a lot of time reading her works and because the portrait of her took, you know, pride of place in her mm. father's study, which 
is also maybe one of the reasons why Mary Jane didn't love oh, Mary because, <laughs> like, Mary Wollstonecraft is still very much the queen of the house, even though yeah. she's dead. <laughs> yeah. But, mm-hmm. of course, it was one of her mother's most fervent beliefs that girls should be educated. And while William didn't necessarily follow the particular principles that she set out in a vindication on the rights of women, he still did educate his daughters. Um, she had, like, a governess and tutor. She had this huge library of books to read. She spent a brief time at boarding school in 1811, but otherwise her father described her as singularly bold, somewhat imperious and active of mind. Her desire of knowledge is great and her perseverance in everything she undertakes almost invincible. I like it. That's a good description. So we've got teenage Mary. She's nearly 16. She's this pale, strawberry blonde goth teen who goes to her mother's grave to read her books and write in her journal. Apparently, she learnt to write her own name by tracing the letters of Mary on her mother's gravestone, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Really? Yes. So this is the goth teen Mary that we all know and love, if you know this version of Mary at all. And if you don't, know that she was a little strawberry blonde goth girl who read her mother's works and wrote in a journal on her mother's grave. So good. <laughs> and so it's 1814 and enter Percy Bysshe Shelley, a 21-year-old, charming, <sighs> radical intellectual, a handsome poet. He's anti-establishment and he is witty and charming and he's just the stuff that makes 16-year-old knees weak and tremble. Yeah. Oh, I love him. He's a dreamboat. Bish. He's the bish. He's a dreamboat, but he's also... No, we'll we'll come to that. We'll come to that, yeah. He's awesome and awful at the same time. Of course. He's another one of our Rossettis, essentially, is what he he is. is. He's He's a Byron. Yeah. He's a Rossetti. You can't help but fall in love with him, but then all the things about him that you fell in love with, he uses against you in some way. (laughs) Anyway, so they actually met in Scotland because Mary, she'd been sent up there maybe for her health, maybe to just get her out of the house and out from under Mary Jane's feet. And they, it was love at first sight. You know, Mm. he's amazing. He's just everything she could ever possibly want in her teenage goth mind. However, Percy was, as well as being an anti-establishment rebellious man who had just been kicked out of Oxford for his atheism, he's Mm. an aristocrat who rejects all of the ideals of uh, the class structures. He he wants to kind of uproot the system and start again. He's all for the little man. He's, he's, he's a vegetarian. He's all those things you think are really fucking great. And he is also married with a child mm. and <laughs> just, Ba-bow. but it's fine because he believes in free love. And so does yep. Mary, right? She believes yep. in free love. So yep. she's like, oh, it's fine. Maybe his wife, not so much, but yeah. hey, <laughs> hey. What does that matter? Free love, man. Free love. Free love. Radical. Free love. He's Mm anti-establishment. Now, you'd think that William Godwin, who was also a proponent of free love and anti-establishment, rebellious, anarchist, you'd think he'd be into this. And he was at first because, you see, Percy came down, you know, to meet the fam. He was like, William, I've just been kicked out of Oxford. I think you're great. Will you take me on as your mentee? Like, I want to learn from you. 
also, I am aristocratic and I have all of this money and I will, of course, reimburse you for the time that you spend uh, mentoring me. And at first, William's like, great, cool, sounds good, happy to be a mentor, happy to take your money, definitely need that. However, as soon as <laughs> it becomes apparent to William that you know, there's maybe something going on between mm -hmm. his young daughter and this handsome, young, idealistic, romantic. Yeah, he changes his mind about old Percy a little bit. But that's still to come, you see, because the two did quickly become lovers. And they would meet secretly at Mary Wollstonecraft's grave in the St. Pancras churchyard. And they would hang out together. They would read you know, read her work. They'd make they'd out make, probably. They'd make out on the grave of her dead mother. And not just make out, Alicia. Love it. Not Love just it. make out because no. she journaled about her meetings with Percy and scholars are pretty – look, no one can know 100% for sure, but reading between the lines of her journal entries, scholars are like pretty, pretty sure that she may have lost her virginity on the grave of her mother. So good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so She's this is so good. <laughs> she, I love it. She really is. Just every 90s <sighs> goth girl's dream. dream. So <laughs> she so really good. is. <laughs> the inspiration for generations of tormented teenage lovers to come. <laughs> because you see, they she writes in her journal that they declare their loves for one another in a sublime and rapturous moment. Ooh. At the grave. So, you know, and a scholar called Best Lovejoy writes, For Mary Shelley, the cemetery was not merely a repository of rotting corpses, but a site of knowledge and connection. It was a place where she read to deepen her literary education and her communion with her mother, and a place mm. where she was inducted into the mysteries of sexuality. Oh. Literary, familial, and carnal knowledge were all bound together in one place. Love it. So good. Ah. <sighs> But as I said, William's not into it, disapproves of the match despite his radical ideals and also perhaps because the money that Percy promised never came through because, look, Percy was not beloved by his own family because they thought that he was going to squander all of his money on, you know, social justice campaigns and, like, giving <laughs> it to the poor and, like, you know, so they weren't just giving him his allowance because that's such a waste. Why would we, you know, fund this this mm. hedonistic, decadent lifestyle of yours? Why would we do anything philanthropic? No, Way too no, no, no. We need to keep that money for ourselves <laughs> and our mansions. That's correct. And so knowing that their love was not to be on a number of fronts, not cool with William, not cool with Harriet, his wife, the two literally kind of packed their bags in the middle of the night. The moon is shining and they're shoveling up their shit together, packing their bags, and they flee in the night. They get carriages to Dover uh, where they get a ship, a night crossing over to France so that they can be together. Now, they call this an elopement, and by an elopement, we really mean an, uh, a marriage of intellects rather than <laughs> literally because obviously he's already married and that is not allowed. But with them on their, their elopement, they also took Claire. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? What's come along, Claire. We're, we're running away in the middle of the night, but just wait, let me grab my stepsister. Want to come? There's a couple of theories about this. Maybe it's because Claire spoke French. 
and they didn't. And they were like, actually, you're going to be pretty handy. Yeah. Maybe though also, I think this came in a little bit later, but there also was a little bit of heat between Percy and Claire as well. Okay. That's going to come up later, but uh, I wonder if the seeds were already there. Like, I think certainly Claire already had a thing for Percy. And so she was probably just like, guys, can I come? Like, you're you're running away to France. The other thing is Percy had a real fucking thing for rescuing teenage girls. So Rescuing in in fucking inverted commas. Thank you very much. But it did fit in with his ideals. And and let's remember it's early 19th century. The prospects for young women were not great. He Mm. actually did genuinely believe that they shouldn't be kind of, you know, sequestered in these lives of domesticity. He believed that women were capable of much more than that. And he rescued his first wife when she was just 16. Um, That's when they got married. He did the same thing for his two sisters. (laughs) He um, liberated them from their oppressive schools. Oh, no, sorry. He had plans to liberate his two sisters from their oppressive schools. So it could also be that this was another teenage girl that he was rescuing from a life of domestic drudgery and in doing so kind of dooming in many ways, Mm. according to the society of the time, Mm. to a life in the margins because your prospects do become more limited once you've kind of absconded with a young man in the middle of the night. Yes, yes, absolutely they do. So I think he was coming from a good place. Like he really did believe women were capable of more than that and he wanted to rescue them. But it's also interesting that he had a habit of rescuing teenage girls. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, it's not necessarily purely sexually motivated because he had his two sisters in mind as well. Like, you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's got to rescue his sisters. Yeah. 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 So anyway... So they went to France. The crossing was horrible, though. Mary was horrendously, horrendously ill. And it might have been because they actually suspected she might have been pregnant as well. Mm -hmm. She didn't even think that they would survive the journey. But when they arrived in Calais after having, you know, like, oh, my God, that was the worst crossing ever. Because it's not. It doesn't take very long to get. I was going to say, it's a very short crossing, essentially. However, they found that they'd been followed by Mary Jane, Mary's stepmother. (gasps) who just like was way smarter about it and just took the morning boat instead of the one in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm. And so she arrived (laughs) there like before they did because (laughs) she hadn't been caught in a storm. And uh, so she actually like met them in Calais and, you know, took Claire and was like, Claire, come to your senses, lodge with me tonight so that you don't, you know, have this ruin on your reputation Mm. for having stayed unchaperoned in a room with a man. But they refused to return with her and stayed in Calais. So they took a tour of the continent, as was the custom, and they actually walked it. Like they walked through France. They planned to walk all the way to Switzerland where Switzerland was like this imagined paradise where I guess they would write about the sublimity of the mountains and uh, I think radical thinking was a little bit more normal there. Which she sort of does end up doing Mm. really. Yeah, Switzerland plays a very important role in her writing life. Yeah. But not on this trip, though she does start flexing her writing muscles on this trip because Mm. she and Percy have this sort of shared travel journal. It's essentially they're writing a travel blog of their time in France. And remember, France has just come out of 
are the Revolutionary Wars. So that's pretty fresh. And they're writing about the people. Well, she in particular is writing about the people, the customs, what she's seeing. She's got a very good eye for detail and her observations are pretty astute. And this actually on her return led to her very first publication, History of a Six Weeks Tour in 1817. And that's something I think a lot of people don't know about Mary Shelley is that she was a travel writer. Like Mm. this is not her only work Mm -hmm. of travel writing, but that's still a year away. In the meantime, they realize they can't maybe walk all the way to Switzerland. Mary is probably pregnant and they've run Mm. out of money. So they return home to England where Mary's kind of surprised and quite devastated to learn that her father wants nothing to do with her. What a shock. (laughs) Oh, it kind of is. She's grown up with his radical politics her whole life. And then she's like, hey, Dad, you know how you believe in free love? I do too. Mm -hmm. And he's like, nah, not for you. Not for my daughter. Yeah. Good enough for me, but not good enough for you. Yeah. And so they found themselves kind of penniless because, as I said, Percy's family, they weren't giving him any money because he was too radical. Well, actually, just on that, on that about her father, I suppose in a lot of ways, like he did sort of put his own beliefs aside to try to save Mm. his daughter from a bad reputation and from stigma. And then she just turned around and got herself a bad reputation anyway. So yeah. it's kind of like in a little bit of – in a. I don't know why I'm coming to William's defence. I don't know why I'm doing that at all. But perhaps this is kind of the thing, you know, like he's like, well, I didn't apply that to you because maybe he wanted something better for her in society, I suppose, you know. Yeah. Like, maybe, yeah. No, it's I an think, interesting one. I think that it probably does come to that wanting better for mm. her. Maybe yeah. not wanting her to have to live the kind of – destitute poverty that he not poverty he didn't end up in poverty but like I said he was constantly in debt like he never really had that much money because of his political beliefs so yeah maybe he just wanted more security for his daughter Mm. or something yeah sorry anyway but that's but we we also know that people tend to become more conservative as soon as they have children don't they because it's all very well and good to be very (laughs) you know, radical when you only well, – you don't care if you're eating two-minute noodles over the sink. Exactly. Yeah. But as soon as you have a baby, you're like, oh, wait, no. Maybe we should – yeah, maybe things need to be a bit better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. So when they returned to England, cast out, they took in lodgings with Claire, the happy threesome as they are, and they continue their writing and their studies and entertaining interesting intellectual, intellectual guests – But, look, moving in with Claire may have been a little bit of a bad move because, as I said, Claire's pretty into Percy. And while Mary found herself growing larger and larger with child, she also saw her lover disappearing for walks and outings with her stepsister. And this is kind of, again, where Percy leans on the the free love ideology. And it's it's Mm -hmm. cool, man. It's just he's going where his heart is and why should we be restrained by, you know, marriage and monogamy. And Mary, I think at this part in her life, believes it too. But you also get a sense that there is this jealousy that's growing Mm -hmm. and maybe... And also it's a lot harder for a young woman with a progressive pregnancy yeah to get much <laughs> yes. free love yeah that's right she's probably looking on being like well 
it's all very well and good for you, mate, but (laughs) I'm nurturing a creature over here, which, by the way, is the language that her mother used when she wrote a letter to William saying that she was pregnant. She said, I'm nurturing a creature, which let's tuck that nugget away yes as well absolutely yeah anyway yeah so this is just one of many examples of percy's free love think of it what you will (laughs) it's like not look non-monogamy is perfectly fine if both parties are totally open and interested in that but you definitely get the sense from their relationship that percy's much more interested in it than mary is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyway (laughs) And I think that's adding to some of her jealousy is also the fact that while she was pregnant, Percy welcomed a son with Harriet, you know, his first wife. So she was pregnant when Percy left her. And so that's sort of going on. And then this was really, really, really made worse. And we're taking a a shift here when just 12 days after welcoming her own daughter into the world, she suffered one of the greatest griefs of her life. The little girl was two months premature and she wasn't expected to survive, but she did survive 12 days. So I think there was probably a lot of hope that Mary had for this child. It's quite a miraculous amount of time for a premature baby to survive in, you know, 18. Yeah, exactly. 14, 15, whatever this was. And the loss was really devastating. She began to dream of her child. She was haunted you know, by nightmares where she tried to revive her but mm. couldn't. She also put the baby near the fire, hoping that the warmth of the fire oh, would bring it back to life. Oh, don't. You're breaking my heart. I know. And this is hugely important in her biography. Like, And this is not an isolated incident. She basically, for most of her relationship with Percy, was kind of perpetually in a state of pregnancy and loss Mm, and mm. like literally like probably a few weeks after she lost this child she was pregnant again this time with a son who she named William who was born on the 24th of January 1816 so that's happening (laughs) but I think the birth of William lifted her spirits a little bit she's feeling a little bit better that brings us to the story of that night. The fateful story of that, that fateful the, the darkest and stormiest of all the dark and stormy nights Byron. in history. They're all there. They're they all there. Because <laughs> if you know anything about Mary Shelley, <laughs> except that she's, you know, the mother of yep, yep. science fiction, the creatrix of Frankenstein, you probably know this, yes, apocryphal story about what happened On that notorious evening in June in 1816. So let's set the scene. Please do. (laughs) It is the summer without a sun, a year that was infamous for its desolation and darkness. In 1815, a volcano at Mount Tambora in Indonesia erupted and the resulting cloud of ash and dust spread across the earth, creating this strange and terrible weather system. So instead of a summer of sunshine and abundant life, most of Europe was covered in fog and cloud, and this led to crop failures, which led to famine, which led to political unrest. So 100,000 people are said to have died in that initial volcanic eruption, which makes it one of the the deadliest in history. But over a million are said to have starved 
in its aftermath, mm. and a further 10 million died as a result of the cholera pandemic that it unleashed. There's always a pandemic in our stories these days. You fucking wait. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Anyway, we'll get there. So it's May 1816, and that summer, Mary and Percy, along with a baby William and, of course, Claire. Arrive- Claire. Can't shake Claire loose. <laughs> Actually, the reason why they went, to, so they arrive in Switzerland <sighs> for this lovely summer holiday where I'm sure that they expect that they're going to feel all inspired by their outdoor walks and activities. The mountains are going to fill them with, you know, s- sublimity as they do and they're going to write lots of poetry and it's going to be great. But yeah, so Claire had actually convinced them to go because she knew that Byron was there. Um, So Byron is in Geneva, hanging out as he was on a lark, having a winsome and wonderful time. (laughs) And then these other three show up and Byron's like, what are you doing here? And Claire's like, you told me to come because she is pregnant with Byron's child. But then Byron's like... Uh, that was not so much an invitation so much as it was just me saying I'm going to Geneva. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so he didn't technically invite his pregnant lover to come and stay with him in Geneva, but nevertheless, she has brought her stepsister and maybe lover Percy and nephew, and they're all going to hang out together. And as you said, yep, we've also got a couple of other really important guests. We also have John Polidori who is an often, you know, forgotten but very important member of this group. Yes, indeed. Another sort of father of a different kind of... Yes. Well, I mean, a folkloric figure that already existed, but still. But, yeah, in a way he's the father of a... Yeah. Of a particular thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, this group of lovers and ex-lovers and would-be lovers, (laughs) because (laughs) it didn't take long for Polidori to develop a bit of an intense crush on Mary and start making some moves on her. And as I said, Claire's pregnant with Byron's child, but also (sighs) there's some speculation that it might have actually been Percy Bish's child. So it's all very complicated and they're all just hanging out together in this fucking gloomy as fuck summer trapped in the villa which being trapped in a villa doesn't sound awful but the tensions must have been pretty like it must have been intense and they're also all romantics you know and they're all led by romantic ideals they spent a lot of time reading poetry and stories they've got nothing to do to fill these days of gloom and incessant rain except for conversation and stories and they in particular they read from phantasmagoria which is a gothic short story collection translated from german and they also discussed a lot of things like scientific discoveries of the time because they're all intellectuals as well (laughs) and so they also kind of so I guess their romantic inclinations may have been a reaction against the sort of dispassion of the enlightenment so the enlightenment is all about like rationality Mm. and the romantics were all about emotion so those two things kind of really come into conflict with each other to an extent but Really, they're interested in both, but they just want to bring emotion into reason. They want to make science passionate. (laughs) Yeah. And so they're talking about all of these really exciting scientific discoveries that things that imbue it with a sense of wonder and sublimity 
Such is the theory of galvanism proposed by Luigi Galvani, who observed that passing an electrical current through a dead frog's legs seemed to reanimate them. What could this be inspiration for? Golly, golly, gosh, Alicia, I just don't know. Where are we going? (laughs) Ah, and if this could be done... Galvani speculated, well, then, could electricity not be used to animate something more? (gasps) Perhaps. Perhaps it could. (laughs) Now, let's remember that there is this very impressionable teenage girl among this company who has just buried a child of her own, has had miscarriages, grew up reading fucking poetry on her Mother's gravestone, a mother who died in the complications of birth. So she's carried this weight, this guilt of her own mother's death around with her her entire life, Mm, mm. has now buried her own child and dreamt of reanimating this child. Mm. And so so let's let that just sit there. (laughs) <laughs> for a moment. Just in case it's not already obvious. Yeah, well, what it's, I mean, it's lead not to. surprising that this is a very fascinating subject for, for young Mary, I suppose, is the point that I'm making. So one night after they've you know, they've been having these conversations and telling each other ghost stories, Byron proposed that the party play a game. Why not try to scare the pants off each other with another ghost story, with their own ghost stories? And they had to be better than the ones that they were just reading. Yes, this is it. This is it. This is great. This is the famous story, the famous competition, which, as you kind of said, also birthed another. It's not as famous as Frankenstein, but extremely important work, The Vampire, because this is what John Polidori went off and wrote. He wrote The Vampire, the first work of fiction, proper novel length or maybe Mm. it was a novella fiction to include the blood sucking vampire uh, which as you said existed in folklore but this is the kind of first pivotal text in the history of vampire fiction yes not dracula no many people often believe no that's right dracula really comes from this text Exactly. So does this whole Byronic association yes. with vampires yes. because Polidori's vampire was basically Byron. <laughs> he yes. just wrote Byron and made him a vampire. <laughs> Which is so good. So good. While Polidori went off and wrote the vampire, Mary was actually struggling a little bit more. So there, I think that there's this sort of myth about this night that they all went off and they penned these stories just like mm. overnight, but she didn't. She really struggled with it. And, you know, despite her intellectual upbringing, she didn't really feel like she was that good of a writer compared to the others, which I think is silly because she was exceptional and she's a genius. But she's also surrounded by geniuses. And when mm. you're a genius surrounded by geniuses and you're also a young 18-year-old <laughs> woman who hasn't yet really published anything, you probably would have a little bit of imposter syndrome. Yeah. yeah. I think that's all it was. She's just got a mild case of imposter syndrome and she's struggling a bit. But one night on the, that very dark and stormy holiday, as the thunder cracked, she bolted awake from a nightmare. And in her vision she saw, and I quote, the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. 
I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful it must be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavour to mock the stupendous mm. mechanism of the creator of the world. Yes! Ah! <laughs> this is why we love marriage. She's so good. She's so good. And really that couple of sentences kind of sums up Frankenstein because this is the germ of Frankenstein and so this creature is spawned, this novel. 18. 18. Fucking 18. She writes one of the most important texts. Of all time, not one of the most important texts of the 19th century. One of the most important, most influential, pivotal literary texts of the whole fucking history of literature. This changed a lot. (laughs) Like it Mm. was genre defining, literally genre defining. Yeah, and we'll be studying it for yeah, hundreds of years to come. And you know, th- for as long as literature yeah. lasts, yeah. we will come back to this text. And I do wonder how many people have actually read Frankenstein. And if you haven't, if you're only really familiar with the pop cultural enigma that is Frankenstein, it's so, so, so worth returning to that text and actually mm. reading it. And I recommend reading the 1818 version rather than yes, the 1832 yeah, version yeah, mm. because it is a masterpiece. And, look, it's not an easy read in 2020. No, it, and it's not a short read No, either. It's, it's long. It's a story within a story. A lot of it takes place in the Arctic, which I think surprises a lot of people when they first read (laughs) Frankenstein. The creature is not a monster at all, really. He is turned monstrous by the rejection of his creator, Dr. Frankenstein. He's actually very articulate and intelligent and reads voraciously and has a lot of compassion and empathy, but is, you know, turned murderous when he's rejected by his father and society and it's really you know this kind of story of oh gosh such complexity so many themes <laughs> it's a story of many things just read it <laughs> i won't you know go too much into what frankenstein is beyond that <laughs> except you know, it is a hybrid. Um, like I said, it's a story within a story. Mm. It draws on a huge range of literary texts and genres such as John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is, you know, the epic poem that follows the temptation of Adam and Eve and the fall of man. It was also inspired by A Vindication on the Rights of Women by Samuel Coleridge Taylor's The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, the myths of Prometheus, of course. The subtitle of the text is mm modern Prometheus and Pygmalion who, you know, created, well, my fair lady, essentially. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Bought his creation to life and felt, well, he didn't actually, Aphrodite bought his creation to life, but he fell in love with it. And it's a work of many styles and genres. So there's the Gothic, it's influenced by romanticism. It's got many elements of travel log in there. Mm. And in putting these styles together, you know, much like her creator, she created a new genre. She created science fiction, this hybrid 
made up of a mishmash of all of these other things that became its own thing, its own work. And as I kind of said at the top of the show, Mary Shelley's works have often been seen in relation to others as these, you know, Frankenstein itself was seen as this Frankensteinian work derived from the influence of her mother, her father, from Percy, of Byron, and all of those other writers that I, I mentioned before. And it wasn't until, you know, quite recently that she started to be seen as an intellect and a writer in her own right, and that readings of Frankenstein started to consider her perspectives, her experiences, mm. and her mm. ideas. But to be fair, there is a lot of her parents' politics in the book. The creature, you know, like I said, he reads very widely. He keeps track of what he reads, much like Shelley did. His you know, creation and subsequent abandonment has been read as a commentary on how the aristocracy make dominion over others' bodies, like lords over peasantry, aligning very much with Godwin, her father's claim that feudalism is a ferocious monster. Mm. And the creature, of course, as I mentioned, is born innocent and turned villain by the terrible treatment of his creator, which also echoes her mother, Wollstonecraft's belief that, you know, people are rendered ferocious by misery. Mm. But Ellen Mowers, a major feminist literary critic, argued in the 1970s that really the loss of her baby was instrumental in the creation of Frankenstein. And I think this is something that's really worth, you know, considering. And you know, I believe that a text is open to many, 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 many interpretations. Our interpretations of the text are just as valid as any kind of biographical mm. detail that, you know, lend itself. But it's very worth considering that because, you know, like as a woman, as a mother and a writer, Shelley was an exception. You know, most other noted female authors, you know, the Brontes, Austen, Dickinson, they're spinsters, right? Like they're yeah. not mothers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not surprising that, you know, with this rise of feminist literary criticism in the 70s, scholars began to take note of the potential significance of motherhood and the loss of children in her work. Because on its mm. surface, you know, Frankenstein doesn't, doesn't seem like a novel about motherhood. For one thing, it doesn't feature very many female characters. You know, we've got Victor Frankenstein. He's got more of a much more of a father figure than obviously anything else. But Moas argues that Frankenstein is a birth myth in which mm. Shelley comes to terms with the guilt of her own mother's death and with her own failures as a mother. And another feminist scholar, Anne K. Meller, writes that it is a story about what happens when man tries to have a baby without a woman and that Frankenstein is concerned with the sort of natural uh, versus the unnatural worlds. Mm. And... You know, around this time, scholars also turned their attention to the entire sheer originality of Frankenstein and attribute the creation of an entire genre, science fiction, to a teenage girl who mm. came to this new genre by way of the female gothic, a genre very much concerned with the entrapment of women within the domestic and the horrors and anxieties of the body and of motherhood. And let's just, anxiety is about motherhood. <laughs> Mary Shelley did have a couple those. of those. <laughs> yeah, she sure did. Yeah. And with good reason. Yes. <laughs> and Sandra M. Gilbert, of course, of The Mad Woman in the Attic, argues that in Frankenstein, Shelley actually kind of continues the masculine tradition 
of Paradise Lost. But through working within male genres, she encodes it with feminine concerns and in particular mm. with rage. Mm-hmm. So, yes, <laughs> I didn't want to get too much of a scholarly kind of conversation about Frankenstein, but I mean, all of these themes are so much a part of, I think, what we do in Deviant Women. I mean, the female gothic is very much my thesis <laughs> in many ways feminist revisionism through the female gothic is kind of what I do so I couldn't help myself but just sort of because we're talking about a biography is just such fertile ground to talk about how much that impact of the loss of her mother and the loss of her mm. children had on her and you know this whole idea of creation and the natural and unnatural you know, Prometheus is the Titan who gifts man with fire and is punished for it because it's this technology that allows man to kind of grow beyond what man was supposed to ever do. It's about this whole like, wait, slow down, guys. Like, you're not God. Who are mm. you to create like this? Mm. Destroying the natural way of things with your creation. But also the idea of bringing things back to life Obviously, Mary was very fascinated with the potential for that because she'd seen so much grief in her life. Because mm. as I said, she mm. didn't finish the novel that summer in Geneva. Mm. It took her a few years. So the party returned and she and Percy moved to Bath again with Claire, whose pregnancy to Byron or Shelley, they hoped to keep pretty hush-hush. <laughs> but, you know, tragedy followed wherever Mary went for a lot of her life mm. and their return to England was no different. So she soon received news that her sister Fanny, you know, whose whole life had been dampened by the cloud of her mother's affair and her illegitimacy had taken her own life by laudanum. And then very soon after Percy's wife, Harriet was found drowned in the serpentine in Hyde Park. Mm. <sighs> that was also probably a suicide, wasn't it? Yes. Harriet. Yes. Yeah. So two suicides coming off of the back of miscarriages, baby deaths, awful, gloomy, dark, stormy summer, you know. <laughs> I mean, this did allow the couple to marry, which was important for them because, again, even though they were both philosophically opposed to the institution of marriage, uh, they did want a strong case to try to win custody of Percy's two children with Harriet. And the marriage was also good because it helped to reconcile Mary and William and her stepmother, you know, because I guess uh, William again is just become a little bit more conservative in his old age or is that whole like mm. yeah you do as I say and as I do but the courts found Percy morally unfit to care for his children so they were instead sent to live with a clergyman and his family uh, meanwhile Claire gave birth to Byron's child and Shelley's attempted to adopt her but Byron in a kind of surprisingly cruel turn of events said that they were basically unfit to be parents. He didn't want them raising a child because he said, have they reared one in response to the idea that they should take one in? Like Byron is such a douche. Yes. God, like I hate yeah, Byron. Yeah. Fucking major dick move there. Byron's not a good guy. <laughs> no. Just everyone, he just everyone isn't, to know that. is he? He's, not He's really not. So the family moved to Buckinghamshire where Shelley gave birth to their third child, Clara. And she also published... Uh, history of a six weeks tour here as well. And during this time as well, she's 
still finishing off Frankenstein, uh, which she published in 1818. And many scholars have speculated the degree to which Percy Shelley was involved in the writing of Frankenstein, which just really... <sighs> uh, yes, that's my reaction. I'm like, oh, <laughs> is that just because you don't think a teenage girl is capable of writing the fucking masterpiece that is Frankenstein? To which the answer is probably yes. <laughs> yeah. I believe in her. <laughs> If you read her other work, exactly, you it's there. Exactly. I mean, uh, to be perfectly honest, of her actual longer pieces of fiction, I've only read The Last Man. Mm-hmm. That's actually the only other thing that I've read of her longer pieces of fiction. But, I mean, it's clear that that's her voice. It's the same it's person. It's clear <laughs> that it's the same author. It's the same writer. Yeah. So, yeah, that suggestion drives me pretty batty to be fair at the time many assumed this because it was published anonymously yeah and because it was dedicated to william godwin and so i think they were like well there's probably only two people who were dedicated to william godwin and one of them is a writer and the other one just wrote some travel blogs so it's probably percy Mm. (laughs) you know Mm. it wasn't of course and it was also seen as being the work of a masculine pen i guess because many people saw this like hideous and grotesque work coming from a woman, like a mm-hmm. teenage girl is just being beyond the realm of imagination, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise it was pretty well received. Like some reviews were critical, especially once the true author was revealed, but it had huge commercial popularity. It was adapted for the stage as early as 1823, it was translated into many languages just a couple of years after its release. And I look, I'm not going to go on about the enduring popularity of Frankenstein because that we would take forever because there's so many adaptations of Frankenstein and reiterations of Frankenstein. We all know Frankenstein, except do we actually? That's my question. Do we really know Frankenstein? Um, because the Frankenstein of popular culture is not necessarily... It's not the same Frankenstein. Cr- no. The creature. And, and, of course, because some people still think it's the monster. <laughs> monster. But, you know. That's correct. <laughs> we, I was like, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say on this podcast that <laughs> Frankenstein is not the monster. Or is he? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, you've got to go down that path, don't you? Especially when you're very, very used to teaching this text. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> but, you know, Mary Shelley, she's not just Frankenstein. She did write other things, as you said. Last Man is also arguably... Yeah, that's I mean, also arguably the start of another fucking genre. It is. Dystopian post-apocalyptic fiction. She invented two genres. Exactly. Exactly. It, that is a prototype dystopian fiction. It fucking is. And it's eerily fucking prescient, man. Like it's oh set my God. at the end of the 21st century where mm-hmm. a plague has wiped out most of the people within warmer climates. There's also climate disasters that are happening at the same time, causing all of these refugees to move to England where, of course, the plague infects everybody in England and this dude who's uh, basically Percy Bish uh, is the last man left alive. Much like Mary herself was the last of her circle left alive. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, that is yeah another very, very significant work. It, that's a, it's a good text. Yeah. It should, again, Recommended. another thing you should read. And I reckon everyone should read her travel writing as well. Travel writing's great. I've read, yeah, actually, I've read a little bit of her travel writing. I haven't read as much as I should have. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to read more. I also, mm. I've only read a little bit 
but what I've read was great because they did do a lot of travel and that's what they did in 1818. They traveled to Italy with their two young children and Alba, who was Claire's daughter, who they were um, supposed to basically go and drop off to Byron. Now that Byron is the one who's going to take custody because he doesn't trust Claire. He doesn't trust the Shelleys. So they're in Italy. They continue to write and hang out with intellectuals and Percy in particular really, you know, finds his feet here. He writes a lot of poetry as having a marvellous time. But, you know, it is the Shelleys and tragedy is never far behind. In September, her daughter, Clara, who was just one year old, died in Venice. She also suffered from miscarriages again and she fell into a really deep depression. And it's a depression that Percy kind of, I don't know if like resented her for is quite the right word, but it certainly put a lot of distance between them. He wrote poetry that he really wished that she would return to herself and return to her old, you know, Mary. But it was pretty clear that, yeah, she's drawing further and further away from him because as she would, like she's just living this life of perpetual pregnancy and loss. I don't really know what she was supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. Like. Or how she was supposed to just like happily carry on. Yeah. For his sake. Yeah. And meanwhile, he's out just like gallivanting around with his friends and going boating. And I mean, so they did give birth to a fourth child, Percy Florence, on the 12th of November, 1819. And this did seem to really lift her spirits finally. But again, that wasn't to last because then in June, uh, William, her first son, passed away from malaria in Rome. So she wrote the novella Fields of Fancy, which later became Matilda, I guess as a way of dealing with this grief. And that's a story that's, this is interesting, about a woman who's basically haunted by her father's suicide, a suicide that is caused by his unnatural incestuous desires for Mm -hmm. his daughter, who blames herself. So that's a little pearl that I don't know what to do with. Mm. Not that I'm accusing William Godwin of anything untoward. He genuinely seems like a very good loving father, but it's an interesting story. Anyway, so the family moved to the South Coast where Mary suffered another horrendous miscarriage. And in this case, it was really life-threatening and it was only Percy's actions of putting her in an ice-cold tub to staunch the bleeding that saved her life. So, like, it's perilous and she must have just been... Again, she just must have been haunted by that, mm. her mother's death. Like, surely she just felt cursed as a mother yeah. and as a daughter. So how old is she at this point again? <sighs> She's in her early 20s. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, I know. Such tragedy just to follow her around. She's so endlessly. young. Yeah. And, okay. Oh, man. I just remembered what's coming next. Can I just say, though, on a happy note, one of their children did fucking survive. Percy Florence, he survived. So the son that she's most recently given birth to, he's going to be okay, everybody. Okay. I just want to flag that for people now. And actually they lived a fucking wonderful life together. She was devoted to Percy Florence. He was devoted to her. He grew up. He was a very boring man who went to <laughs> the schools that his father hated and became what his father hated, but he but loved But he survived. He, loved he survived into adulthood. He loved his mother. Yeah. That's all the fucking that's matters. That's all that matters. And that's all she Good. cared about. She was like, I don't care yeah. that I have this boring normie son. 
<laughs> He's my boring normie son. Yeah, good. So good. that's Excellent. the silver lining because what's yeah. coming next is the greatest grief of her life. I think you know what's coming. I do. And that is, okay, so Percy, as I said, his relationship is a little bit fractured. Percy began spending time with another woman named Jane Williams, and she was the wife of Edward Williams. And these two, they were like couple friends, you know, with the Shelleys. They spent a lot of time together. In- you can never trust those couple friends. No. Don't trust couple friends. And, of course. Sorry, that sounded really <laughs> Sorry to all my couple friends. Yes, a lot of couple friends. I've got a lot of couple friends. It sounds really suspicious. <laughs> Well, these couple friends were more than couple friends because Percy was soon writing love poetry addressed to Jane rather than Mary and they were soon having an affair. Mm-hmm. So he's also meanwhile off gallivanting with his you know, other intellectual philosophy buddies, including Edward, Jane's husband, and he got really into sailing and he headed off onto the waters with his friends on his boat, the Don Juan. So on the 8th of July, 1822, Percy set off on a return trip from Livorno, where he had been for a few days with Byron. However, his boat never made it back. Mary and Jane, whose both of their husbands were on this boat, waited desperately for their husbands to return. You know, Mary is there sharing her grief and worry with her friend slash her husband's mistress, who is also grieving both her husband and her lover. So it's very complex. Mm. And it took... After a few days, (laughs) some bodies washed up on the shore and it was three bodies of the men who were lost on that boat. But due to Italy's quarantine laws, the bodies couldn't be taken back to England for burial. So Lord Byron quite famously cremated Percy's body on the beach. Mary didn't attend because she was too overwhelmed with the heaviness of her grief. And she said that Percy's death was the greatest tragedy of her life. And one part of Percy to apparently survive the cremation was his heart, which Mary kept for the rest of her life wrapped in a silk scarf along with some of his poetry and locks of her children's hair. Do you know if that's true? Is that actually true? Apparently. I mean, it may not have been his heart, but she kept something wrapped with the poetry and the children's locks of hair for the rest I've of her life. Because I've heard that story before and I'm like, that story just does not seem accurate. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've not seen anyone dispute it except to say that there's a possibility it wasn't his heart just because it's hard to know if the heart was the thing that they picked up. It mm. might have been another organ, but she kept something wrapped <laughs> in a silk scarf for the rest of her life. I mean, she's the queen of the goths. For a reason. That is true. So if anyone's going to keep a body part of their dead husband, it's going to be yeah. Shelley. Oh, well, I guess, you know, more recently Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton, they kept what? their blood in vials around their necks. Did they? Yes. Okay. Do you not know about that? They sure. each had like a necklace with little vials of each other's blood <laughs> and they wore, they wore them around their necks oh, in the 90s, that. of course, because that That's stuff great. only really happens in the 90s. That's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So <laughs> don't worry. We're kind of, we're nearly there now. We're nearly there. Yeah. Uh, so this left Mary a single mother with basically no money. So after a year of making a living, basically transcribing Byron's poems in Geneva, she returned to England with her son, Percy, 
Florence. Uh, she took up a career as a writer properly, so this time she's actually making money for it, and she wrote all kinds of things and made quite, you know, a small success of herself because being a commercial writer as a woman at this time was quite rare. You know, you can be a poet, you can you can write for fun, but actually making money, making a living from writing, was really hard. Mm. And things weren't helped by the fact that her father-in-law Timothy Shelley kind of. Well, I guess he was still a bit biased towards his son's widow and his grandson. And look, he gave them a little bit of money. He gave Mary a small allowance to help his grandson, but it was on the condition that uh, the money be repaid once Percy Florence inherits the estate. And really importantly, she was not allowed to publish any biography of Percy Bish. Hmm. Yes. Hmm, That's interesting. Actually, on that as well. How much influence did she have on publishing his poems posthumously? A lot. That's another one, isn't it? Yes. Because I might have this wrong, but I thought that pretty much the majority of Percy's poetry mm. or a lot of Percy's poetry was basically published by her after it, his death. Yes, absolutely. And this is actually one of those ways that she kind of found her way around the claws and one of the ways that she made money in her later life as well. So, yes, she absolutely devoted herself um, this was part of her writing and because she edited a lot of other works as well. She both was a writer. She wrote novels. She wrote short stories. She wrote biographies and she edited a lot of collections mm-hmm. and she really tried hard to make the most of her husband's work. So she did mm-hmm. edit his poetry collections. And one of the ways that she got around Sir Timothy's no biography clause was by including long biographical footnotes <gasps> in the works that she edited. So this is sort of one of the ways that she managed to kind of write about her husband and get her husband's biography out there and continue his legacy while sticking to the conditions of her allowance. That's so clever. That's brilliant. (laughs) And also like the interesting thing about that as well is the fact that we've talked about how people have, you know, that the idea that Percy perhaps was responsible for some of Mary's yes. genius in but Frankenstein. But you never hear it the but other way around. Yeah, why aren't we saying, about- oh. oh, by the way, Mary was the one that edited Percy's poems, yes. so maybe Percy's genius is Mary actually Shelley's- kind of Mary. I fucking know. You only ever hear about it the other way around. Oh, but- Percy must have edited Frankenstein. You never but we hear know. Mary but we Shelley know. edited Percy Bysshe Shelley's fucking poetry. And she's instrumental in the fact that his work was, you know, continued posthumously after he died. How ridiculous. Is that so ridiculous? Absolutely. We put our our feet down. But also, yeah, how fucking clever is it that that's how she just slipped in his biography? (laughs) Like, (laughs) Love her. She's so she's smart. Wonderful. She's a fucking genius. She's one of those ones, you know, sorry, just yeah. like, you know, just keep her in mind if anyone ever says to you, who would you have at a dinner party, oh, dead or alive? fuck yes. Mary Shelley. Good answer, Mary fuck Shelley. Yes. Very, very good answer. Yes. Because another reason why you want to invite her to dinner is, so she's a widow now. She did attract some attention. There was this one dude who was like a bit into her and he proposed to her and she said that after being married to a genius, she couldn't <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't marry someone who wasn't a genius. I'm paraphrasing from memory, but it was something yeah. just like super amazing. Like, well, you know, I've been married to a genius, so mm. basically so she's maybe- like, 
you're not a genius, so I can't. <laughs> my, standards, my standards are pretty high now. <laughs> but also she maybe was bisexual, and this is another thing that we don't know about Mary Shelley. So in 1824, she moved to Kent Town in order to be with Jane Williams, the wife of Edward Williams, yeah. who perished in the boat alongside Percy. And... Percy's lover. Mm. The nature of the relationship between the two is uncertain, but some, including Muriel Spark, who wrote one of the kind of earliest pivotal Mm. biographies of Mary Shelley, uh, speculated that the two actually may have been romantically involved. And this is, again, because of the way that Mary Shelley writes about her in her journals and diaries and, and letters and things like that. Now, it is worth remembering that the nature of women's letters and journal entries in regards to female friendships mm-hmm. at the time were very intimate and written about in quite romantic language. They were often quite passionate. And we've kind of talked about before that whole question of historically whether we sexualize female friendships mm. because we want them to be less sexy and overlook the importance of female friendships and the intimacy of female friendships and the fact that female friendships can be as intimate and, you know, as Mm. close as relationships. Or, of course, the other very, very, very valid interpretation, which is, of course, that this is a coded way of speaking about, you know, lesbian desire. And so, you know, Shelley was a radical proponent of free love. She wrote a lot about, you know, monsters and outsiders and a lot of queer theorists have kind of looked at this relationship and not just this relationship but also she acted as a something of a benefactor and supporter of other queer and marginalized women including a woman named Mary Diana Dodds who uh, Shelley helped to elope to France with her girlfriend by assuming a new identity Walter Sholto Douglas she procured her a or him, sorry, a male passport, and basically they lived together as husband and wife. And oh Mary, my God, I did not know yes, that. Yes, Mary totally set that up for them. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, a few things that Mary did, and I think this is something else that people don't talk about in her biography, is her potential queer identity. Mm. And she's certainly an ally, if nothing else, you know, yeah, yeah. so fascinating. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't have a clue. I think a lot of people don't know about that because until all the goth stuff takes over, probably, <laughs> probably <laughs> everyone because... gets you hung up too. Hung when up you lose your virginity on your mother's grave and you carry your dead husband's heart around in a silk yeah. cloth, that probably subsumes your um bisexual yeah, affairs. That really takes precedence, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> and it was never explicit. Wow. I guess it was all pretty hidden. But I also mm. love that if this did happen it happened with percy's lover like yes <laughs> you know which is to say maybe who knows what was going on before percy died like when those yeah. couple friends were maybe really couple friends you know yeah i don't know yeah. that's mm-hmm. purely speculation on my behalf like there's not grounded on anything <laughs> bit of swinging could be happening could be. Nobody knows. and yeah otherwise as i said she kind of devoted the rest of her life 
She was writing, she was editing, she wrote more travel logs, such as Rambles in Germany and Italy, which were based on her travels with her son. She wrote biographies, short stories. In 1831, she released a revised copy of Frankenstein, which included quite heavy revisions, particularly in regards to her depiction of Dr. Frankenstein, who kind of evolves from being this kind of curious man, you know, driven by science, Mm. whose great sin is refusing to love his creature, to somebody who's kind of more controlled by fate more than science, which kind of shifts, I think, the politics of the work a little bit. They're actually really interesting to read, not side by side, Mm. but it is quite interesting to read both versions. And it's funny because I've got both and I have read both, but I read them a couple of years apart, so I can't recall exactly the differences. Yeah, I don't think that stuff is Mm. blatantly obvious, Mm. but it is certainly there if you're going to dedicate your time to pulling it apart. And, well, because her... (laughs) Politics did shift later in her life. So, I mean, we were talking about The Last Man before, and this is a work where we really do see almost a rejection of, like, her parents' politics and the Mm. ideals of the Enlightenment because, you know, the Enlightenment's all about, like, rationality and progress through collective efforts, you know, and this romantic ideal of this kind of utopian alternative through imagination and art, that there's hope in the world through art and, you know, she basically comes along as, you know, like, you know what, guys? That's all shit. The world's <laughs> shit. Everything's shit. There's no hope. <laughs> this is bleak. We're not going to get better. Sucks. Nothing's going to get better. And so she writes fucking dystopian fiction as a reaction so against enlightenment romanticism. Like, mm. come on. I don't know if that mm. means much to anyone who's not, like, studied literature, but that's a pretty radical change actually Mm. really Mm. because it's a bleak bleak novel and as I alluded to before it also kind of biographical in the sense that Mary Shelley essentially was the last man standing you know of her everybody else died (laughs) Fanny died Percy Byron Mm. I think Claire outlived her but she's basically the only one and the romantic movement died yeah. Along with yeah. them all. But what a glorious flame it was while oh, yeah. it flared. Yeah. And, you know, by now the world is changing. Like it really is. She's moving into the Victorian era. Her son, like I said, he's a total normie. Like he's just, <laughs> he went to like Eton or Harrow or one of those schools. He went to Cambridge. He played rugby. He plays golf. He gets married. <laughs> Marries a woman named Jane, <laughs> who Mary liked very much. She love she loved her daughter-in-law. She moved in with them. I think she was very happy at the end of her life. Jeez, what an anticlimax. <laughs> very happy. Yeah. What a disappointment. Doesn't fit. No, no. Yeah, that's pretty much it until unfortunately later in life she developed what people now recognize as a brain tumor, which meant that she kind of had a lot of uh, health problems later in life. She kind of wasn't able to read often. Mm. She had sort of these attacks where she couldn't move her body very well and she did ultimately die from this brain tumour in 1851 at the age of 53. So young. I know. It Mm. is really young and it's funny because it seems old because everybody else died so much earlier than her. But Yeah, that's right. 53 is not old. I think actually Claire lived until her 
70s or 80s. So Claire wow. really lived, outlived them all. Yeah. But Mary wanted to be buried with her parents in St. Pancras. But Percy Florence was like, that cemetery is a bit gross. We're going to move you to St. Peter's in Bournemouth, <laughs> which is where he and Jane lived. But they did have William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft reinterred there along with her. And when Percy Florence finally died, he was also buried with the heart of Percy Bish. So Aww. the whole family did end up interred together. <laughs> but you know what's kind of sad about that, though, is it also means that when you go and visit the grave yeah. of Mary Wollstonecraft, you're not actually at the place no. where Mary Shelley and Percy banged no, you're not. on the grave. What a disappointment. Wonder... It would be much better to be able to go to where they banged on the grave. That would be so much I wonder better. if there's a marker in the St. Pancras uh, Cemetery <laughs> where this... Mary Wollstonecraft's grave used to be, but instead there's just a plaque that says, here Mary Shelley lost her virginity <laughs> to Percy Bysshe in 1814. Uh, I hope so. On the grave of Mary so. Wollstonecraft. <laughs> I hope that's there. That's, that's pretty great. We could go there I and would just go to that. stick a stick in the ground. Here, <laughs> Mary Shelley and that Percy would be worth a pilgrimage. banged. Definitely worth a pilgrimage, <laughs> for sure. That's wonderful. And that is pretty much all I can fit about the life of Mary Shelley. There's obviously wow. more, there's a lot more to unpack. There's a but lot of criticism so of her impressed. work that we could go into. But that was... I oh. am very, very... Proud of you, Lauren. Oh, thank you. For fitting this in <laughs> under an hour and a half. I know, me too. I just looked at the time. I was like, holy <laughs> shit. I did not expect to be at the end of my notes within an hour and a half of recording. Neither did I. I was like, this is going to take us forever. We're going to have to make this one a two-part But I episode. feel like you were restraining yourself as well. Like, And in my notes, in my yeah. reading, there were so many rabbit holes, so many tangents that I was like, yeah. ooh, want to go down that rabbit hole? And I was like, no, you do not have time. <laughs> for that rabbit hole, Lauren. You must emerge, yeah. emerge from the rabbit hole. I feel like, yes, I feel like maybe I didn't get as involved in some of those points as I could have because I was a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> I was a little bit conscious of the fact that we could have just rambled for oh, a really long time. But I think, I mean, as far as I know of the biography of Mary Shelley, and to be honest, I thought I knew quite a bit mm. about Mary Shelley. Even I have learnt so well, I feel, I feel like my I. job is done then because if I've taught you something, then it's all worth it. So that was fantastic. Thank you so it much. I'm so really, really pleased that we did that one. Fun to be in Mary Shelley land, which I haven't been in for a few years. Yeah. And just oh, to read about it. Sorry, but the Susan M. Gubba essay is called Mary Shelley's Monstrous Eve. And just Beautiful. that title alone, you know you know that there's a really good rabbit hole <laughs> you could go down. <laughs> and, of course, I'm sure that for all of our listeners, Lauren will have a rather extensive bibliography for bibliography this particular for this episode. episode. And you know what? Like you don't need to go down all of the super literary criticism stuff to find some really mm. good, interesting essays like – I read some fantastic – there's a fantastic New Yorker essay by Jill Lepore called The Strange and Twisted Life of Frankenstein. Another one that I really loved is on Lit Hub and it's about Mary and Percy's sort of tumultuous beginning of their relationship. Another one from The Guardian, Why Hasn't Mary Shelley Been Given the Respect She Deserves? So these are kind of much more accessible 
essays if you just want something that you can read in half an hour and feel like you're getting some depth you're getting some bite something intelligent but accessible like there's so much out there and also, of course, not to say read Mary Shelley. Of course. Like that's oh the God. other thing that you should read. <laughs> and, of course, you know, as you mentioned before, she does have some much shorter work. Yep. So, yeah, Frankenstein's enormous. The Last Man, pretty enormous. But you mentioned Matilda. That's mm. basically a short story or a really a short novella. Novella, yeah. Yeah. And the travel work, which, you know, as Lauren mentioned, that's something that we probably haven't read. You can dip in and out of that. Of. Yeah. Yeah, don't just read about Mary Mm. Shelley, but Mm. read Mary Shelley, especially because it is October and you should be reading scary things. things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Do it. So if you've never picked up Frankenstein before, then it's not a cliche (laughs) to say that you should. Yeah. Because you just should. Especially if it's a dark and stormy night. Absolutely. Yeah. And stick with it because, look, it's dense and the language is very romantic, but, you know. Yeah. (laughs) If you're a first year undergrad at university you'll probably just skip it and watch a movie (laughs) and then you won't get the book at all no you'll have everything wrong your tutor will know if you watch the film instead of reading it's like one of the most obvious times where your tutor will be like cannot get away you cannot get away with watching the film instead of reading the book you just can't any of the films (laughs) none of the films it can't be done you have to read i have to say though because i think Unfortunately, a lot of like high school English and undergrad lit classes kind of destroy Frankenstein for people, which is very upsetting. But in my experience, like we showed pictures of galvanizing. I remember one of my Mm. first lecture as an undergrad, we were shown this video of galvanism, the little frog's legs twitching. I was like, holy shit, I can see why Mary Shelley was turned on by this. Turned on is not the right word. (laughs) Turned on, gross. (laughs) Fascinated is what I meant. And when I taught it to my class, like we read the scene where the creature is reanimated that scene then we watched the uh the 1930s film version and then i showed the rocky horror picture show version to (laughs) to talk about the evolution of the myth of frankenstein and the various because it's not a cliche to say that there's been some frankensteinian creations that have come from frankenstein it is a a tale with as many rebirths and you know reanimations as its creation yeah absolutely and of course it is one of the most enduring and influential concepts and and ideas that we see in pop culture again and again and no one can see this i was just gonna say we're on a podcast no one can see this but i'm wearing a jumper that literally has a picture of the bride of frankenstein do you really i can't even see that through the screen i can't I'm see wearing, it were you wearing, wearing it on my, purpose for this recording no i wasn't oh. but i've just realized i'm wearing my ghoul gang jumper That's amazing. which has bride of frankenstein lily munster morticia adams and elvira fan fucking tastic but just one last point it is a book that is enduring and as i said we can read Mary's bibliographic details into it, or it is a book that holds up completely on its own. Mm. It is a text mm-hmm. of our time as much as it is a text of her time. And in fact, it is a text that is taught in many science courses or computer that where students are learning about AI and robotics. Mm. It is mm-hmm. continues to be taught within these contexts where students are potentially going off to create this shit because, you know, it's that old adage of like science can tell you 
how you should do something, the humanities will tell you why you maybe shouldn't, you know, yes, like, yes. so it's timeless. <laughs> Thank fuck for Mary Shelley. <laughs> yeah, indeed. That's all we have God to say. God bless you, Mary Shelley, you teenage Brilliant. goth. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. So thank you so much for finally taking us there. And now I think I've got quite big shoes to fill for the next mm. episode actually after that. Like where the fuck do you go after Mary <laughs> Shelley? What can you possibly do after Mary Shelley? I'm going to have to have a good long think. But you did say something earlier in this episode that actually has possibly mm. sparked. Sparked your idea. imagination? The yes. thunderclap, oh, yeah. you've seen the vision oh, yeah. of a woman hunched over yes. another woman <laughs> actually kind of <laughs> yeah so we'll see I, i'll pursue that avenue okay. and i'll see if i can come up fantastic. with fantastic if not i will try to come up with something else as spooky because hey it's october let's yep. just stick with spooky well it's fun it's good i look forward to eventually finding out whatever this association is when we return in two weeks time yes. which is when we will see you next and in the meantime, of course, you can catch up on all our old episodes. Kind of funny because I guess our last episode as well with Mary de Morgan was another one of those women who was in with a crowd. Yes. You know, like a real crowd yep. of particular artists <laughs> and intellectuals. And yeah, kind of an interesting comparison there. But of course... Then there's loads of other things mm-hmm. you can listen to as well. And lots of them. If you want even more content, you can join us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month, where we have a whole suite of bonus episodes, including our most recent one. Yes. On Hag Goals. Hashtag Hag Goals. On Louis from Finnish Mythology. And um, it's hopefully something that we might even pursue for some new merchandise. Absolutely. T shirts. Hag Goals. That's what we want you to think. And you know what, because maybe we can make that an exciting new thing for if, you know, international shipping mm-hmm. ever becomes a thing again, we'll launch a new T-shirt in celebration. Yes. How does that If sound? you're in Australia, though, you can still buy merchandise on Etsy, but unfortunately we can't ship, but we will let you know when we can ship internationally again. And if you can't afford to support us financially, we totally understand. So instead, you could always just show your love and support for us by leaving us a review, a good review, on (laughs) any of the review things that you wish to review us on. Absolutely. And that's it. Um, We will see you next Spooky October episode. Until then, we hope you have a safe and spooky week. And we also have to say a big thank you, as always, to Brendan Davies for the sound. And India Hui for the music. And Dan, our executive producer, and we'll see you next time. Bye.